Good morning. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. The word of God speaks to us. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's word to us. All right, good morning. A totally clear and sensible passage. We know exactly what to do with that, don't we? No even need for a sermon. We'll just go ahead and give the benediction now and get on to brunch. Hey, I actually think that there's a lot going on in this passage that's really important for us today. My name is Chad Kinser. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, if you're new or visiting or back uh, after a long time of being away, hey, I'm really glad that you're here, however you're jumping in today. If you're a Christian, a longtime Christian, maybe a family member in town, uh, or not a Christian, maybe here in the city and exploring the claims of Jesus, um, however you're here, it's a privilege to share a morning with you, open God's word with you. If you've got a Bible, the passage we just read will be where we are today. We're working through... um, the book of 1 Corinthians, rounding third, as it were, in our study of this book. Uh, we've got just a few weeks left before we finished. It's been the better part of a year, our study here. And we're here in chapter 15. And before I pray, I just want to say that maybe if you've been with us the last few weeks, chapter 15, all about the resurrection and the doctrine of the resurrection. And some of what we explored in 15, you might be familiar with. If you have a background in Scripture, if you have a background in the Bible, um, Portions of this chapter may be more familiar to you, somewhat familiar to you, but I, I suspect that the passage we read today might be brand new to many of you. Uh, it's a passage, if, if I'm honest, that I've spent the least amount of time in in this chapter, um, but it's also a passage, I've heard many sermons on different verses in this chapter. I've never heard a sermon on this passage in this chapter. And so I think there's a lot of really important things for us to explore today, and I'm going to ask that you would please pray for me. I'll pray for you, and my hope is that what we talk about today makes sense and is really meaningful to us. So let's pray together. Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you'd be our teacher today. 
Jesus, I take such confidence and comfort that you tell us that we don't have to figure out you or life with you or life at all on our own. I take a lot of comfort that you tell us that the Holy Spirit would be our guide into all that's true. That the Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher of Scripture, but also of ourselves. And so God, I'm asking today is that we come before your word. I've had so many beautiful encounters with you in your word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm asking that what will be on front and center display over the next 30 minutes we have together would not be my voice or my thoughts, but your voice in everything that you bring forward. Would you shape us as your people and build us on the rock that is our Lord Jesus? And we offer this prayer in his name, and everybody together said, Amen. Amen. A really important question to ask as you think about faith and maybe even moments of crisis of faith is what you have come to believe to be out there really out there? Is what you have come to believe to be out there really out there? Meaning God and issues of life after death. It's a common question. Maybe you've asked it before. Maybe you've given it different words in your own internal conversation. It's a serious dilemma, right? That, that question, what comes with that question, what hangs on that question isn't just whether or not you believe something to be true. It's not just do I believe this thing or not believe this thing. It determines how you live in the present. How you answer the question of what you believe to be out there or not determines how you actually live with consequence or not in the present. It determines the urgency and the validity of your ethics, how you understand the consequence of a life well-lived. Or maybe a life well-lived doesn't matter at all. Maybe it doesn't matter at all. Maybe we just all wind up in the same place in the end. We all just take different roads to get there. See, the question of who or what is out there as some phrase the question, that's a really big question. It's a really big question. And often what comes with questions like that are other questions. That question leads to other questions behind it about the claims of the Christian faith. Questions like, does any of the talk about heaven or the future or something that was done 2,000 years ago, does any of that stuff have any earthly good now? Or are we just talking about a distant past and a distant future detached from our present realities? Is Christian faith really just about divine fear-mongering to hold morals in check? Or has God truly intervened in the world in such a way that gives transformative power both to the future and to our present? Big questions. Other questions like, what actually happens to me or to my loved ones after we die? How do I make sense of a resurrection and the claim of heaven? How do I make sense of these things? How much of that is literal and physical to be really believed solid, and how much of that is just therapeutic and symbolic, allegorical about something else? Is Christianity just another philosophical worldview built to cope with suffering and death? Or is it real? Is it just one of many options, or is it the option? And if it is real, the resurrection of the dead Will we recognize one another in the future? 
We recognize one another. Maybe you've wondered about things like this. Maybe you've asked questions like that. Maybe you're currently asking questions like that. Maybe you're not asking questions like that, but you are now that I just presented them to you, right? Here's what I want you to know, though. All of the questions I just went through, the real tensions of faith, those questions aren't new. Like those questions aren't like the questions of enlightened modern people that look back on an antiquated thing years ago that people believed, but we've just moved beyond that. These aren't new questions. These aren't the questions of moderns. These are the questions of the ancients. And some of these questions are what give rise to the problems in Corinth that Paul was addressing in the passage we're looking at today, specifically regarding their denial of the resurrection. That's why Paul's talking about the things he's talking about. And I dare say most of what you and I believe about issues of heaven and life after death don't come so much from Scripture, but from our imaginations. I would dare say that many of the things that we believe about heaven and life after death come from our imaginations or from what we feel like we've heard from church, but we haven't really dealt with the actual Scriptures that speak to those things. And so this gives all the more urgency to know more certain, what do we really believe? And why do we believe it? Where does it come from? Does it have any roots in God's holy word? And before we start working through our passage today, I want to state a burden. I want to state maybe um, the big idea for today, that whatever we're talking about, here's the thing that I'm driving everything around that I believe the passage is driving forward. There is nothing more important than what you believe about death and the future that impacts the way you live now. There is nothing more important than what you believe about death and the future that impacts the way that you live right now. And I want to make that clear from the jump this morning because it it confronts some common misconceptions. There's some misconceptions. Some of us would say, hey, why do we need to talk about theological issues of the future? Why do we need to kind of get in the weeds theologically about issues of death and the future? Let's just deal with life right now. Let's just deal with where we are. Can't we just deal with life application in our present? Can't we just deal with that, some would say. And yet there's others. You're on the other side of that misconception because you're currently bored in your faith Or maybe you're currently deconstructing from your faith because what you've received is actually a reductionistic version of Christianity. And so what you're actually deconstructing from isn't the true thing, but a reductionistic version of it. And it's caused you to be bored and maybe want to take an off-ramp. Maybe some of you heard a version of Christianity that dealt only with the future, but it had very little significance on your day-to-day life. Maybe you were told that the real reason for faith is to deal with the fireworks at the end of it all, the issues of heaven and hell and death. And so long as you live right, and so long as you stay out of trouble, and so long as you try your best not to do too many things that make God upset, then you're good. And that's what Jesus is for. Maybe that's what you were told, that Jesus is just sort of this live how you want, but get out of hell free card for the future. 
And with that version of things, let me just be honest, with that version of things, if that's what you were sold, that's so sort of detached from the reality of your day-to-day, if that's what you have come to believe, then no wonder you're more compelled by what the world has to offer. Because that actually deals with your present. And I'll just sort of deal with that when I'm sort of on my deathbed. Dorothy Sayers, an author, says this, how can one, sorry, how can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life. That's what many of us have received, at least we maybe have thought we've received. And yet, here's what I want you to hear. The biblical vision of life isn't a vision that excludes the importance of your daily life out of a preference for the future. So it doesn't prefer the future to the neglect of the daily, but it also doesn't prefer the daily to the neglect of the future. Instead, the biblical vision of life is fully integrated with God giving meaning to both now and the future, and he fills both now and the future. That's the biblical vision of life. And so I say again, there's nothing, there is nothing more important than what you believe about death and the future that impacts the way that you live right now. Nothing. And so we're going to unpack this main idea in this passage around two turns today. I'll give them to you, and here we'll get to work. The first is this. The future resurrection is physical and bodily. And then we'll end by giving three reasons why that matters. (laughs) The future resurrection is physical and bodily, and three reasons why that matters. Let's jump into the first Verse 35, Paul says, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body will they come, or do they come? So what's happened to this point is in the previous 34 verses, Paul has been defending both the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of those who belong to Jesus. He's defending the resurrection not as this sort of icing on the cake add-on to everything else we believe as Christians. He's defending it as something that is essential and critical to the very core of Christian faith. This is not just sort of an item along the buffet line. This is the feast. And he gets to verse 35, and what Paul's doing is he's predicting a question that the doubting Corinthians are asking. Okay, Paul, if what you say is true about the resurrection, then what kind of body will we have? If what you're claiming is true, then then what's that going to be like? Like, like, will I still have fat fingers in the resurrection? In the resurrection, am I going to finally have that fit wonderful V-shaped body, or will I still have this janky old mess? Like, Paul, what's going to happen? These are questions that you and I might ask. Will we be recognizable? Will Will we recognize family and friends who have passed away and get to share and enjoy eternity together? And look at how Paul responds to this question in verse 36. He says, you foolish person, exclamation point. Exclamation point. You say, whoa, Paul, uh, that's the last time I try to ask you a serious question, if you're going to come back at me like that. He said, I'm literally, I'm asking the question, what kind of bodies will we come with? Because I don't know. If what you're claiming is true, I, I don't know what this will be like. And, but notice, he responds this way. Because he knows the Corinthians are supposing this question more from a place of mockery than of honesty. 
They're, they're saying it this way. Come on, Paul. You can't expect us to accept any of this. How can a corpse that has turned to bone dust or burnt to ashes receive a body? That's, that's the craziest thing we've ever heard. You see, but Paul has no problem with your honest questions. Paul actually welcomes your honest questions. Paul has a problem with the mockery of the Corinthians and a claim that he calls to be foolish. That's what he's mocking here. And so he goes on in verses 36 to 41, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to use creation. He's going to use the natural world around us as an illustration. He's going to say, this is an appeal. You already have. You already have a framework for the radical, physical transformation of the body by what is common knowledge to you in creation. I'm gonna prove that to you. You already have a framework for this. What I'm claiming isn't that far-fetched. It's not that far off. It's true in Jesus. I'm defending that truth by what you can now see in the world around you. He starts this illustration by relating to your experience of all things with gardening. With gardening. Look at verse 36. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. Or sorry, unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, whatever you plant in the ground. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Here's what Paul's saying. Nature is hardwired to show us and teach us of the radical transformation of the body. Nature's hardwired this way. When you plant produce... Or when you plant a flower, you don't put into the ground a fully grown produce and cover it over. That's not how you do that. Instead, it's a seed, isn't it? It's what you put into the ground. It's a bulb if it's a flower. It's a bare kernel, as this passage says. And compared to what it will be, the seed looks weak, doesn't it? Put some seeds in the ground, it looks weak. It looks powerless, it looks almost like nothing at all. You put that body, you put that seed into the ground, and you see radical transformation of form start to take place, and over time, a crop comes forth. A flower shoots out of the ground. Something glorious emerges from the ground where it was buried. Maybe you're not a flower person. I'm not speaking their language. This same illustration works in the transformation dynamic of a caterpillar to a butterfly, of a caterpillar to a butterfly. Where it starts is almost nothing to be compared to what it becomes on the other side of the chrysalis. Nature, Paul is getting at, is hardwired to show you and to teach you something about the radical transformation of bodies. And so he moves from what is plain about the transformation of bodies to another illustration, and he calls our attention to what is plain in creation about the variety of bodies or different kinds. Look in verse 39. He says, for not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, the glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, and even each star differs from star in glory. So what Paul is getting at is it's plain for us to see that bodies vary in creation. Everything from humans to animals, even to stars and moons and the sun. Not all bodies are the same. They differ in size, they differ in form. But each of those bodies, animals, fish, birds, humans, stars, moons, sun, all of them have a glory and a dignity of their own and they all serve a purpose. 
Okay, lean in with me. These two illustrations, here's Paul's point. If you and I can see the creative power of God in the variety of bodies in creation, and if he is the intelligence behind the radical transformation of bodies that we see, if that's true, then surely he holds the power and the intelligence for something like the resurrection of the dead. You see this in creation. Things transform. There's different kinds of bodies. Then surely God can do this, especially for humans who bear his image and are supposed to display to the world what he is like. If God has the power, follow his logic here. If God has the power by the breath of life to bring forward from dust the physical body of Adam, and give the human body a kind of glory, if God has the power to create Adam from dust with his breath of life, then does he not also have the power to bring forward an all the more glorious physical body to live in his presence from the bone dust of a corpse? Yes. Paul's point is you bet he has that power. You bet he has that power. He's hardwired it in creation. And if creation bears witness to the creator, then surely he can do that for the crown of his creation, humanity, in something like resurrection from the dead. And the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus is the first evidence of that. What God has worked in Jesus, what God has worked in Jesus, he has worked for all sinners who belong to Jesus. The resurrection in verse 20, Paul says, is the first fruits of all who belong. And so this is exactly where he goes next in verse 42. And so, it, and so is it with the resurrection of the dead. What you see in the pattern of transformation and creation, what you see in Jesus, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, you and me who would belong to Jesus both physically and bodily. He goes on in 42 to say that our current bodies, you know this, our current bodies are perishable. They're aging. They're decaying. Over time, things just don't work like they used to. And everyone 35 and older in the room said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> like last night, I was preparing this sermon. I got up from my chair and my back just hitched. <laughs> like literally, I, 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 I'm probably not going to be able to preach tomorrow. I'll just sit there and Charlie will do this thing unprepared. Our bodies are perishable, he says in 42. 43, he says our bodies are dishonorable. They're marred by sin, and we've used our very bodies to sin. Our bodies are dishonorable. 43, he says our bodies are weak. Even the strongest among us has in, in, uh, limitations. And yet, because of the power worked in Jesus, we will be raised with him on the great day, we will be raised like he was from perishable to imperishable, never to decay again. We, he, we will be raised from dishonorable to glorious, never to be stained by sin again. We will be raised from weakness to power, never to be defeated by death again. What's happened in Jesus is good news because he says, I've worked that for you. I've worked that for you. And then in 44 and 49, he drives home the nature of what we can expect in the resurrection. He says in 44, it is sown a natural body. Our bodies are sown, they're lived naturally, but they're raised spiritually. 
And if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, if you've moved your inheritance from Adam to Christ because you belong to Christ, then also he says you will surely then, just like Jesus, physically and bodily, bear the image of the man of heaven. And so what Paul is doing here, it's a big download I know, but track with me, The contrast between the natural and spiritual isn't what we often think it is. And it's not what the Corinthians thought. Because isn't it true that like them, we often place those terms in categories of real and ethereal. That the natural is real stuff, but the spiritual is ethereal stuff. That the natural is physical stuff, but the spiritual is non-physical stuff. But Paul is making his point in this passage about the resurrection being bodily and physical because 10 times in this passage, he repeats the word body. He's making his point. When Paul talks about a spiritual body, he's not talking about a non-physical body, but a real body similar to your current, current one, but completely filled and empowered by the Spirit of God to live in the presence of God. Here's a long quote from a scholar Vaughn Roberts, that makes great sense of this. He says, Just as we all bear the likeness of our first ancestor, Adam, and we have an earthly, natural body like his, so one day those who belong to Christ will bear his likeness and receive a heavenly spiritual body. But Paul wants them to understand that Christians will have a spirit that Christians will have a spiritual body by which he means a supernatural or spirit empowered one rather than an immaterial one in the new creation we are told preci- we're not told precisely what form it will take or what it will look like although we can assume that just as the disciples recognized the risen Christ so our new bodies will be recognizable continuity with our earthly ones only transformed They will certainly be physical. The new creation will not be a bland, immaterial existence of disembodied souls floating in nothingness that some imagine it to be. It will rather be a physical place populated by people with material bodies in the awesome presence of God. And I love in this quote that he says that the new creation will not be disembodied souls floating around That's often the idea we have, isn't it? I think we get that from like Tom and Jerry when someone gets smacked over the head with a frying pan and then this little spirit starts just coming out from the body. And we go, that must be what heaven is like. (laughs) That, that, That must be how that goes. But what Paul has just laid out in these verses was a massive shift from what is common to the way the Corinthians thought, but also the way that we think. So we often think of our bodies in the world, something like the Titanic. Run with me on this idea for a second. We often think of our bodies and the world, something like the Titanic, as though this world is a sinking ship and we need to escape from it. That one day we're going to shed our old body in this world and we won't be held down anymore by limitations and we'll finally move on after the world is gone and our body is gone, we'll finally move on to a higher spirituality. And you know that you take this view of the body and the world like the Titanic when you hear people say things like, well, about my loved one, they're just in a better place now. 
They're just, they just moved on. They're finally home rejoicing in heaven. You know you've taken this view of the body and the world like the Titanic when you assume that a disembodied heaven is home, that it's a place to escape and to move on from. Instead, the biblical vision of the body and the biblical vision of the world is less like the Titanic, and it's more like the city of Moore in 2013 after the tornadoes hit it. It's a place where something tragic has happened, but it's not a place to escape from. It's a place to double down to see redeemed and restored. The whole reason that God has sent his son into the world, he sent his son into the world, not that we would escape the world, he sent his son to the world with a body, not to shed a body, but to have incarnation, to take on a body to live, to die for sin, to rise from the dead, to inaugurate the kingdom of God and to promise to return to the world, not to escape it, but to finally establish his kingdom in the world, visibly, physically, bodily, once and for all. And that should tell you something about God's heart for the world, and it should also tell you something about God's heart for our bodies. It's less like the Titanic as something to escape, and it's more like the city of Moore, something to be redeemed and restored. Now, three reasons why this matters. Three reasons why this matters. I told you at the beginning of our time today, one big idea. There's nothing more important than what you believe about death and the future that impacts the way you live right now. The first reason why that matters is this. The resurrection is about the restoration of all things. The resurrection is about the restoration, the putting back together of all things. You see, for Paul, the resurrection matters not only because of what you can and I can expect for our tombs. The resurrection matters because it means the entirety of creation will be restored as God intended it to be in the beginning before sin entered in. Hey, let this sink into your mind. Let this sink in and blow your mind for a second. The biblical story begins on earth, Genesis 1, 2. It begins on earth with creation, and the biblical story actually ends on earth at new creation. That, that's actually the, the story, that's a story arc of Scripture. In the beginning, heaven and earth were not two totally separate places. Earth was specifically created by God as a dwelling place for God with humanity. Heaven and earth were separated by our decision to sin and reject God's authority. And so since Genesis chapter 3, God has been on mission to restore all things, to redeem all things, and to reestablish his kingdom on earth. Check this. Revelation, if that's where Genesis begins in the beginning of Scripture, Revelation ends with the heavenly city coming down out of heaven and resting on earth. Christians throughout the history of the church have always believed that God intends to fully and finally dwell on earth with his people for all eternity. That's what we believe. We're not going away to heaven. That's a resting place until the final redemption of all things when God establishes his kingdom here and now. Let me give you the vision of that from scripture, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven. This is the end of scripture. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's a very earthy future a physical future, tears wiped away from real cheeks. He will wipe away tears from our eyes, and death will be no more. Neither there shall be mourning or crying or pain. Those physical things will not be known because we'll have a renewed physical future. For the former things have passed away, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What you have come to believe to be out there is really out there. These words are trustworthy and true. And so this matters. This matters. And I feel like I can't say this enough. The vision of heaven is not of white robes and white rooms, disembodied, floating in some far place way in a galaxy. This matters because what a physical future tells you is that chaos in the world does not win. Chaos does not win. God does. God does. That's the first reason this matters for now. You can rest confidence that God wins. The second thing, the reason it matters is your body matters. This vision of a physical bodily resurrection means that your body matters in the future, but it also matters now. Jesus came in a body. He identified with us totally in a body as an engendered man. He dignified every stage of human development because he joined us in every stage of human development. Jesus died in a body suffering in our place for the sins that we committed against God with our bodies. Jesus died in a body because of sins we committed with our bodies. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead physically has now been poured out on his people to fill your mortal bodies. That's Romans 8 verse 13. The same Spirit that raised Christ fills your body now as you await his final return. Your body matters. Remember what Paul said back in 1 Corinthians 6? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. The body of the Son of God was broken for you. Glorify God with your body. The future resurrection says something about your physical presence with God forever. But it also says something about your life in the body right now as you await the great day. The future resurrection means that your body matters now and then. This means something for the way that you steward your sexuality. Under the lordship of Jesus, your body was made by God. It's for God. And sex is something that God designed for marriage where two become one flesh, mingling their bodies in a shared life together. The resurrection means something for your sexuality. The resurrection means something for the way that we fight against our temptations and the way that we can hope to be freed from addictions. The resurrection means something to be freed from addictions. He died for you. He rose for you. He's with you. He's not going to abandon you. Fight against sin. It means something for the way that we carry out relationships and honesty and integrity. In your body, you stand before 
truth himself and you will do so forever. It means something for your relationships. It means something for the way that you love your enemies just like Christ did in the body. It means something for the way that we learn practice by practice and patience to forgive those who have hurt us just like Christ did in the body. It means something for the way that you love those around you, not just with words, but with your actions, 1 John 3, just like Christ did with his body. Your body matters. How you live in the body matters. And here's the final today. It matters because Christians of all people can live and die with comfort and courage. Christians of all people can live and die with comfort and courage. Have you, ever, have you ever sat and thought, maybe I'm just the weird one in the room, which I, I'm fine with if that's the case. <laughs> Charlie has given one amen today. <laughs> has, have you ever thought, sat and wondered, how, Jesus, how, how is it that Jesus remained calm when he heard the news that John the Baptist had been beheaded by King Herod? Like, he said, there's been no one better born of woman than John the Baptist. He was the forerunner, the prophet that told of the Messiah to come. And he got news that John the Baptist had been unjustly beheaded by the king as an act of persecution. And how did Jesus remain calm in that moment? That's, that blows my mind. Let me move from there. What about the Egyptian Christians who were martyred a few years ago, beheaded by radical Islamic leaders for confessing Jesus as Lord? Think about them for a second. Their hope under persecution, when they were sitting there on their knees as the pictures depicted, with swords being taken to their necks, their hope under persecution wasn't, well, after this, I just go to a disembodied future where I float around. No, 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 no. The reason that Jesus stayed calm, the reason that on their needs they held their confession of a risen Christ is because we serve a God who puts heads back on. A literal, physical resurrection of the dead redeemed and vindicated in the presence of God forever in a restored creation. He will deal with every injustice and judgment. He will vindicate all of his people on the great day when we are resurrected, ruling and reigning with Christ even though a world persecuted us and called us crazy. Who's crazy now? This means that we can live with courage for the glory of God right now, because that's coming for us. What's the worst they're gonna do? Cut our heads off? So you can take risks. Every feeble effort you have to bear witness of Jesus, a stumbling effort to share your faith, it counts and it matters and God will use it. Every action that you take to care for the poor, the orphan, the widow, make a difference in your city and the things that God actually cares about. God will use it, and it matters. You and I can die with comfort. We can die with comfort, and we can mourn in hope over loved ones who have passed before us because the empty tomb of Jesus says something about all tombs. It says something about all tombs, especially for those who belong to Jesus. Here's what it says. It's only a little while longer until we are raised with him. 
you can live and die with comfort and courage. The oldest single confession of the church has these words in it. We rehearse it every time we do baptism. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And that holds you right now. Amen.